0: Hi, this is Joe Chambers. Welcome to Musicians Hall of Fame Backstage. Today's show is the complete interview that we did with multi-Grammy winning, CMA award winning vocalist, songwriter, musician, guitarist Vince Gill. Vince talks about how he got started from early childhood as a musician. His trials and tribulations to get where he is today, the phone call he got from the legendary Eric Clapton to the phone call he got to be a member of one of the greatest groups of all times, the Eagles. Hope you enjoy it. If you do, be sure to hit like, subscribe, and the notification bell so you don't miss any of our new content. And for those of you who can afford to help, we now have a Patreon account. Once again, Vince Gill. Welcome back to Musicians Hall of Fame with the great Vince Gill. Vince, thanks for coming in. You got the bottom of the barrel, Jojo. Down uh, to the V's. I don't think <laughs> Get Vinny. Oh, well, okay. I can go with that. So always, when I do this, when I've known somebody, um, I try to think of the first time I remember hearing your name. or mm. And the first time I remember hearing your name might have been uh, Steve Buckingham. Mm-hmm. He cut a song of mine on Terry Gibbs. Yeah. It was called Your Baby's Rocking in a Brand New Cradle. And I went, whoa, who's playing guitar on this? And he said, well, it's this new guy. He looks good. All the secretaries love him. <laughs> and he's a heck of a guitar player. No kidding. His name's Vince Gill. And that was the first time I heard, I remember hearing your name. That would have been about 85, 86. I think the first time I met you was was the short-lived uh, TNN Songwriters Award Show, <laughs> and you had um, and you were in it for when I call your name, All right? And I was in it for I mean every word he said by Ricky Van Shelton, and you and Garth and Clint Black, I think, were the only ones that showed up out of ten. Uh huh. I said this show's not going to last long if they don't get more artists. <laughs> <Nobody> shows up, <laughs> and, uh, and it didn't. <laughs> I think they got one more show out of it. But uh, so, how did you get started?
1: Well, just like most people, you know, I think that I had a I had a love for it from as far back as I can remember. Um, my father played a little bit. My mother played the harmonica for about two songs, and then she'd run out of breath, and she was done, and my grandmother was a really pretty accomplished piano player back in Oklahoma City, in a little town called Yukon, Oklahoma. And um, so I was always around music. My big brother played a little bit, They I loved records. They played records and played music, and I have pictures of me um, with a guitar, sleeping with a guitar on a, on a sofa when I was probably two years old, you know, and my arm was around this guitar. So I don't remember ever not playing, you know, and the crazy thing is is I was crazy enough to try, you know, and uh the first place I think I ever played in front of people was in grade school. Second grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. I can't remember what what grade it was, but I went over and they let me play The House of the Rising Sun. So <laughs> I'm playing a song about a house of ill repute in grade school and I knew the die was cast and I was meant to be a heathen musician for the rest of my life.
0: That was a great song. Yeah, it was a great song. And I was too young to know what the hell it meant. I didn't know what it meant either. <laughs> I just knew that I learned A minor, C D F. Uh, but I still love the song. I still love the animals. So what happened next?
1: Well, I um I played all through those those young years. I I played I took violin lessons for a few years in grade school, took some piano lessons from a little old woman down the street that was uh, the house kind of smelled like mothballs, so it wasn't much fun taking my piano lessons. So I kind of cut those two things out and kind of steered myself more towards the guitar and played in little bands, little rock bands, in school, and we played the dances and the mixes like like a lot of folks do. And then when I was probably a sophomore, um, I got involved in bluegrass, and I really loved bluegrass. I'd never knew much about it, and and joined a young band. Uh, Called the Bluegrass Review, and they were, there were some pretty really great players, you know, for teenage kids, and they were the hotshot players around the area, and they folded me in and kind of learn, helped me learn about bluegrass, and and that led to another band I was in called Mountain Smoke in high school, and that led to my first record, which was about 1974, I think, and uh, we made a record, and and lo and behold, somebody played it on the radio, and. And so I'm still in high school, and I'm getting, you know, this song's kind of a, a local hit of, of, of sorts, you know, and and I'm getting paid to be playing these joints, and, and, and the die was cast. I, I knew I didn't want to go to college. You know, I never even applied to a school, never even looked to a school. My father was a lawyer, so I didn't know how, how well that was going to go over when I told him I wasn't going
0: to go to college. But
1: I never got any grief from my folks for, for living my dream.
0: Did you have kind of that... Thing you did when you heard the song on the radio?
1: Oh my! I went nuts. I went nuts. It was a old John Stewart song called "July You're a Woman." We did it kind of bluegrassy with a banjo and stuff, and I played banjo on it. and And I was on I forty. I can take you to the spot in Oklahoma City. You know, I'm still in high school, and and I'm listening to the radio, and they started playing it one day, and I'm like, I'm on my CB radio screaming at people, so they're playing our record on the on, on the radio, you know. And, Truckers were coming back, sounds good, kid, you know, whatever. And, and I'll never forget it, you know. And, and to this day, I still don't like to leave the car and get out of the car if one of my songs is playing on the radio. <laughs> I like sitting there till it's done. still feels
0: good. Steve Warner said he was, he pulled into the uh, road over on Dickerson Road. and The windows were down. And this girl, this, his song was on the radio. He wanted to scream out, that's me. That's me. (laughs) But you know, Steve, he he wouldn't do it. Too good a guy. Yeah. So kind of what happened between that and Pure Prairie League?
1: I, um, you know, once again, I got out of high school. I was average student, you know, uh, public high school and, you know, got by middle of the road, C student, occasional B. But um, I just knew what I wanted to do. So I didn't really apply myself too much to to high school and played some sports, things like that, normal. And then I f- finished high school and this group from Louisville called the Bluegrass Alliance called and, and uh, asked me if I would be interested in. There was a position that opened up; they needed a lead singer, guitar player, and I said, "Sure, I'll come." That was a band that uh, was the the band that Sam Bush and all those guys yeah. were in before they started. Newgrass grass revival there was a real neat history of great musicians bluegrass musicians that went through the bluegrass alliance training ground so to speak you know and uh, tony rice was one of them and wow. sam and all those guys were members of the bluegrass alliance dan crary great flat picking guitar player that went out west and started playing with byron burline and so i went and did that for about a year in louisville kentucky i moved you know i just got in my van and put all my stuff in there and had the courage to drive somewhere I'd never been before. I'd never been to Kentucky. And I found a place to live with one of the guys in the band that rented a room from this other musician that had a nice house and rented rooms to musicians. And I got a room in the attic for 15 bucks a month.
0: And away I went. (laughs) So I I didn't even ask you this. What kind of guitar did you have when you first started?
1: I had a Martin. I had a Martin D-41 when I left home. I mean, I had a, a 335
0: gibson 335
1: that was uh my christmas when i was 10 that was my first guitar
0: that was a great way to start
1: pretty good start yeah and uh so i had this 1971 martin d20 d41 and i moved to kentucky and the first gig i played when i got there was at some festival and this guy had an old herringbone a 1942 d28 herringbone i said can i see that he was carrying it around the festival and had a big sign on the on the case. And he said, can you afford it? And I said, probably not, but I'd sure like to see it, you know, and pulled that thing out and I hit it. And then every good bluegrasser wants an old, you know, pre-war Martin D-28 to play. And so I said, would you consider a trade? And he said, no, not for what you've got. And I said, well, how about a trade and some money? And he said, okay. So I think we traded guitars and I gave him 1,650 bucks. And that money, that 1,650 bucks was all the money I had. I had saved for my future. That was my nest egg, my whatever rent money. Yeah. And I wrote a check for all the money that I had, so I had no money. A great old D28, and this job that paid a couple hundred bucks a week. You know, every every time we played, which wasn't all the time, but occasional. I said I can get by. You know, so.
0: Do you still have both those guitars? Yeah. You do? Absolutely. What, what year is the 335?
1: I was 67. That's a good one. It's not bad. Yeah, yeah. Not not the desirable years, and I've got a few dots. I think they're all.
0: Yeah, they're all pretty good. It's who's playing them, you know. I remember seeing Lynn Campbell playing a Japanese import, and it sounded better than. It sounded like him. Right. Yeah. Now, did you play just guitar? or Did you play mandolin? I played a little bit of everything.
1: You know, the and and taught Talk. Yeah, pretty much, and. For so many of the bands I played in, when I played with those, the, the Alliance, then I started playing with Ricky's band. Ricky Skaggs had a band mm-hmm. called Boone Creek, and this was long before he started making solo records and before he played with Emmylou and, and all that. Jerry was in the band, Jerry Douglas, a couple of other guys. And, um, so I quit the Alliance and started playing with Ricky, and that didn't work out. There wasn't any gigs, and they let me go, and and that's when I moved to California. started playing with Byron, and that, that changed everything. That was a big... Uh, a big move for me, and, and uh, Byron hired me to come out there and play with him. And that's when I started doing some sessions and getting to play on records and things like that. And um, and then I stumbled into the Pure Prairie League gig in late 78, did that for three years.
0: How, how did you know or how did you get the opportunity to be a session musician?
1: Just from being around guys like Byron, you know. And a lot of it in those days was primarily bluegrass Oriented stuff, you know, but I was also out there and just immersed in the music that went on out there. The Wrecking Crew was out there. You had guys like Robin Ford and Larry Carlton, and you just had every every bar you went into had some legend, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Larry Carlton for the first time, and it was, I immediately went home and said said somebody I said take this trap piece <laughs> bridge off my 335 and get me a stop tail yeah. piece so I can have that sustain, you know. Yeah. All that kind of stuff was was so eye-opening out there in, in all kinds of music. And and then kind of fell into this pop world with Pure Prairie League and had a big hit with them in 1980 called Let Me Love You Tonight that I sang. You wrote that, didn't you? I didn't write it. No. My friend Jeff Wilson, who was also in the band, and his partners wrote that. and uh, So then I was on American Bandstand and Don Kirshner's rock concert and uh, Solid Gold, Mike Douglas Show. Everybody had a show back then. Mike yeah. Douglas. Yeah. And, Merv Griffin and Tony Tennille and John Davidson, and we just, uh, Marie Osmond, I think, they had a show, and we did them all, you know, just go out there and lip sync three minutes and get a check and go home.
0: (laughs) Amy was a huge hit. It was
1: a big record, you know, and a lot of people think that was me that was on that record, but that was, if they do the math, it doesn't really work out because Amy was recorded in the early 70s by Pure Prairie League with Craig Fuller, who wrote it, and sang it. Then he left the band. The band was dropped from their record contra- contract. And then Amy started catching on at college radio stations around the country in like 75. And um, it all of a sudden started getting really popular so they went back and re-signed the band but Craig wasn't in the band anymore. Yeah. So they kinda had this popularity going through that song and, and I joined the band two or three years later and uh, as a matter of fact when Amy was really popular our band, back home, called Mountain Smoke, uh, opened a show for Pure Prairie League in Oklahoma City. And a friend of mine was had an audition with uh, Pure Prairie League and, and uh, asked me if I wanted to go. And I said, sure, I did a show with them a few years ago. Go say hey and see if they remember me. And walked in, and they go, hey, you're that kid from Oklahoma that plays all the instruments, you know. Would you be interested in this gig? And I said, I, no, no, I've, I'm working with this band and I enjoy it and they said well come back up and jam with us you know so this was fun for me to take a twin and turn it all the way up and start yeah. ripping down at 335 yeah, and having some fun and, and rocking a little bit and so I said yeah maybe I'll do this you know so I did and wound up writing some songs for them and I did three records and a couple of hits and, um, and then I, I didn't see a, a, a long future with that band and one of the reasons was my wife at the time, Janice, was pregnant with our first kid, and uh, she was born in 1982. And they worked, my God, 250 days a year and more. I said, I don't want to have a baby come into the world and be gone all the time. Yeah. So I said, I'm gonna give notice, and be around for my kid, and so that's when I started uh, kind of working towards a solo career, you know, in '82, and uh, started playing with Rodney Crowell mm-hmm. and Roseanne Cash. Um, And session work was starting to pick up a a little bit more a little bit more. And then I got a record deal in 83, RCA, out of Nashville,
0: and I said, hey, let's move to Nashville. It would have been kind of poetic justice had you been in the band and sang Amy now, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would have worked out pretty good. Hey, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back.
2: Hey, Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum Backstage fans, check out our new Backstage gear. From t-shirts to coffee mugs, we've got you covered. Not yet a fan? Check out our YouTube channel and enjoy some intimate conversations with the world's best musicians.
0: Welcome back to Musicians Hall of Fame with Vince Gill. Uh, I was talking to Barry Beckett. He was talking about you. I interviewed Barry years ago. And he said, I remember Vince laying on the couch in my office and going, I don't know what to do, man. I can't get arrested in this town because yeah. I didn't drink much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're one of the few. And um, then, yeah, all of a sudden,
1: yeah. Well, Barry and I got to be great friends uh, through Rodney, uh, playing and singing on Rodney's records. Barry was always around that that crew of people, and we traveled some together, and and. Um, and also, Barry was producing other acts and getting me to play and sing on some of that stuff, and so we'd become very close. And I, you know, I'd had several things happen with the records I'd made at RCA. Nothing happened. You know, we kept trying something different, trying something different, a different producer, and, and and then Barry and I were great friends. They suggested, why don't you go in with Barry? And I said, okay. You know, so what happened was I was going in and playing Barry's songs. And he w- wasn't responding to them, you know. And and I finally, after a few meetings, I said, Barry, I said, I, I, I said I'm puzzled. I said I'm playing you some songs, you know. And um, and I, I, you, you don't respond, you know. I don't know. I, and I don't know if you're, if you don't like them and you don't want to say you don't like them. I can take it if you don't. And, and he said, Well, he said that's the problem. I do like them. I said, Well, I don't understand. He said, Well. I wasn't supposed to tell you this, but RCA said, because of your past, with none of your songs really cracking the code, they said I couldn't record any of your songs. And and he says, that's my problem. Um, I like your songs way better than than this stuff that we're getting, and and whatever we're getting is... And he says, so I don't know what to do. And I said, well, so I don't either. (laughs) You know, I sure don't. And he... He looked at me. And he said, "You know what? hell with them. I'm going to cut your songs, because 'cause they're better." And uh, when I when I call your name was in that batch. Never knew lonely was in that batch. And so I, I had some good songs. And um, uh, so we we cut five or six things. And and RCA didn't respond and said, "Well, we n- nothing's really floating our boat." They
0: passed on when I call your name.
1: No, they didn't. I didn't get to when I call your name, but never knew lonely was one of the hits that I'd had from that first record and um they just said it just sounds like what what we're used to from you and so I said them well let me go I said let me go try something else and Joe was one of my best friends and still is Galani, to this day he said I don't want to let you go he said I believe in you and I said I know you do you're my friend and this isn't about any of that I said but let me try something else you know he said okay and he did and so then, the lucky thing was when I call your name was was on that next record I made with Tony, Tony Brown, and here's the best part about When I Call Your Name being such a big hit was we called Beckett. You know, late at night, and said, "Hey, will you come? We need a piano intro. You know, we need something cool on this 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 song we're working on." He said, "Okay." So he comes over at one or two in the morning and plays this completely uh, just identifiable intro to when i call your name it's like when you hear behind closed doors or something like that you you know what pig played was something that that really identifies a record and he did that and the song all of a sudden had had that identity right off the bat and so fast forward a while later that song had become a hit and we had a big party for it and we invited barry and and barry came came up to me with a big bear hug like you know only barry could do and he said, man, he said, congratulations. I, We've all believed in you for so long. It's so cool to finally see and blah, blah, blah. I said, by the way, he goes, who's playing piano well, yeah. on When I Call Your Name? And I said, are you serious? He goes, yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you are. He goes, I am? <laughs> I said, yeah. You came in about 2 in the morning and played that solo in the intro and da, da, da. He goes, oh, well, no wonder I liked it. <laughs> and you know what?
0: He was telling the truth. He, he was. Did he didn't
1: that. remember it. I mean, he's doing, you know, producing all day long and all night long and mixing and doing sessions in between, and uh,
0: totally fine. I know. I, I interviewed so many guys. I said, "Did you play on?" I don't know. I don't remember. And they don't. When you play, I mean, you know, you know. I remember when I first started doing this. I was talking to the original eighteen guys. I thought maybe I thought they were kind of kind of pulling my leg. Well, I, I played on about ten thousand sessions, mm-hmm. and you multiply and they were doing three or four songs a session 30 to 40,000 songs in a lifetime in kind of unreal unreal so how did you learn how to write just trial and error you know and, and and it took a
1: while that was that was kind of the last thing to come along did you
0: have a mentor that kind of
1: well i had a lot of mentors you know i mean that
0: taught you how to write
1: not so much taught me but just by by example you know and i think that it's it's like anything else. It takes repetition. It takes writing a hundred bad songs to get a good one, and writing another hundred songs to get a second good one. And and the ratio of great songs is 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 pretty small, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 I was I was just you know, people were would respond to my singing. People would respond to my playing, but the songs weren't as good. You know, that's a fair assessment, and I agree with them. Mm-hmm. And. It took a long time for those to kind of find their way through and, and it was kind of the last thing in line that that, uh, that got going, you know, and then started to work and uh, I was just quick to settle, I was quick to, uh, you know, not dig a little bit deeper and, and now I'm, all, I'm just editing all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and, and finding, well that word, you know, Guy Clark was a great example of every word matters. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you? Huh?
1: Well, you know it does, yeah. and and you kind of go, if it's not telling this story and it's not helping, get it out. You mm-hmm. know, and it's the same thing with playing. It's the same thing with singing. When you're young, you're you're like a rabbit. You know, you just I got to show you all this stuff I know. You know, and I got that lesson early on as a player. You know, one of the first sessions was sat down, played my part and played my solo, and somebody done the talk back. And said, well, that was good. Let's try it again. This time, just play me half of what you know. Yeah, I said oh, okay. Point taken. And it's interesting over the last forty-five years. You know, I've worked on a thousand artist records in my career, and something I'm proud of because that's what I wanted to do more, way more so than be an artist. I wanted to be the session guy. I wanted to be somebody that they called to sing on the records play on the records and all those kinds of things. I've studied the backs of records and and just knew the musician's name. And I would buy a record if a great guitar player i knew played on it or what have you and so that was if i had a a dream it was to to do that so it was important to me to continue to do that throughout my career even when i started hitting a lick you know started to do well because well you don't have to do that anymore i go i'm doing it because i love it
0: yeah and so i still do it i do it all the time you know james panko lives here now okay and uh we were walking through the museum, and we walked past this piano I got from caribou, and he goes, "You know, Elton John really really liked our horn section. actually, he asked me to write the horns to one of the songs, and then they didn't put my name on it, but he wrote the horns for "Don't Let the Sun go down on me, oh really, yeah, you know, Amy
1: recorded a bunch of records out of caribou, I yeah, but a lot of her records were used uh, that piano too,
0: yeah, it was uh well, I got one that was in the studio, and I've got one that was in the uh, Chief Ure Cabin, which was, that's where the bigger yeah. stars I never going. got Stay. to go there. How did your life change when I Call Your Name came out? Because that was a huge, huge, huge record. Yeah, I don't, you know... It uh, of the Year, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it won everything. Yeah. You know, it did great, but I don't know that, um, I don't know that anything about it Changed me, you know. All the everything around it changed because of it. Everything was was then, you know. You were welcomed into the club, yeah. so to speak. And radio was more willing to play your next record, right. and, and it started a nice uh, long bunch of years of having a bunch of really successful records and selling a bunch of records. And the best time in life you could have ever hoped to have had a had a hot hot streak, you know. But it it it's still, it all, it's all felt the same at every point. When I was making the first record in 1974, I was trying to do, just do the best that I had mm-hmm. at the time. And, and, and to this day, I'm still trying to sing the best that I can, play the best that I can, write the best song that I can. So I don't, uh, I've, never, I've never let the results kind of be the end all to what I think I've accomplished. You know, because even in all that stretch of of amazing success, I feel better about my artistry now than I than I did then.
0: Yeah, well, you feel like you've improved, right?
1: I do. I feel like I'm a better player, a better singer, and a better songwriter.
0: I love that about you. When you they asked you why'd you join the Time Jumpers, you said I want to be a better musician. Yeah. I was like, wow, more well-rounded. Learned something.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I never some advice I got early on was never be the best musician in the band you'll never learn anything yeah and and that's proven to be true you know in that you'll get in a situation I, I've been in a few situations where I was in over my head you know and and it it forced me to really to bear down you know and a few things that I thought I don't know if I can hang you know and just be patient enough and work hard enough to find your way in
0: and and it all worked out but that's just you know. I gotta know what possible situation can you have been in.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Plenty.
1: Really? Plenty.
0: Sure. I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah,
1: I uh, two that come to mind. One was playing with Sting. They had a TV show for a while where two artists would get together. It's called Crossroads, mm-hmm. and and you'd sing each other's songs. And so they they asked me to do it a lot of times, but the the artist they always asked me to pair up with never made enough sense. Yeah. And they said, "Sting," and I go, that sounds great. He's a musician, he sings high, writes his own songs that's that that could be something. And then I started going, "Oh, his music's pretty complicated, you know it's a little over my head, but it made me bear down and go down in there and find a way to contribute, you know, maybe not note for note or any of that kind of stuff, but found my way that I play and sing to interpret what he had done, and it forced me to to go down a road that I hadn't really been down, mm-hmm. you know was a great uh, example of that. And then another example that I always talk about was, I was asked to be a part of a Brian Wilson tribute about 18 years ago in New York City. And and, uh, so they said, we'd like you to sing uh, Warmth of the Sun, which I kind of knew a little bit, beautiful song. And then they said, we'd also like you to sing Surf's Up. And so, I like the Beach Boys, but I'm not an aficionado of the Beach Boys. I didn't know that song. And I said, okay, thinking it was Surf's Up, Baby, everybody's, yeah, right. Surf, you know, something like that. And I figured they'd want you to do something up tempo with the ballad, you know. And then I got Surf's Up and I put it on. And my eyes got really big. And I said, what? This is like a classical piece. Yeah. This is deep. This is, this is way, this is all the way over my head. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even touch the bottom here. I called my manager, Larry, and I said, man, I can't do this song. It's it's way out of... I, he said, no, just just take some time with it. You know, I called... Uh, who was doing the... Phil Ramone, maybe, doing the was head of the music for it. I called him, I said, dude, I I don't know if i cut this, you know, because it's got stupid range and, yeah. and melodic and all this stuff. And, and he said, man, just live with it a little bit. See if you can do it. It'd be cool. And so part of it was... Uh, done with uh david crosby and jimmy webb wow. so the three of us were going to wow. do this and i of course had all the falsetto stupid crazy you know they, they had this little these little parts in the middle that didn't <laughs> didn't test them too hard and so i remember going into rehearsal and i was i was scared to death you know i'm in mean, there with david crosby and jimmy webb and we're at rehearsal and and i nailed it i just nailed it the first time through and david crosby looks at me and goes
0: yeah, I mean he's one of the greatest singers. I mean one of my all-time favorites. Damn. Mine too. So, so it 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 came off,
1: and I walked off stage doing it that night at uh, wherever we did it. I think it was Radio City, and, and and Brian was on the side of the stage, and I walked by him and he shook my hand. He goes, "That was really beautiful." Yeah. He goes, "That's uh, that's I no but we never did we never did that song live. It was too hard." Man, <laughs> I said thanks a lot. <laughs>
0: I saw him sitting at the piano in the sand at his house, just him by himself. It was great, just that. Yeah. His stuff's so haunting, you know. It's genius, you know. Yeah.
1: All that to say was, yeah, there's plenty of times where, you know, I may not look like it because I'm, you know, pretty, you know, I like to be funny off the cuff and kind of silly sometimes and all that. But there are times that I'm petrified, you know. It, it,
0: have, have you ever felt like you made it
1: made it yeah yeah i felt like i made it when i could pay the rent when i was 18 years old
0: yeah that's a great answer
1: you know i did yeah. you know and and it, it 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 was more about the caliber of people i was playing with that was more of how i would choose to define making it you know because i was in the world of bluegrass and i was playing with some of the very best musicians that Bluegrass has ever produced, mm-hmm. you know, and so as, as each step unfolded, I felt, you know, everybody said, you know, why'd you quit Pure Prairie League and start playing with Rodney? I go, the band was better. It's Larry London, Emory Gordy, Tony yeah. Brown, Hank, and Albert, and guys like that, and uh, Richard Bennett, and, and I said, this is a caliber of musician that is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to benefit from this because they're better. There's nothing wrong with somebody being better than you, you know. I'm used to it. I am too, you know, and it's it's a it's a great thing. Yeah, because if
0: you take it in the right light, then you can, you can really learn a lot. I tell you what, you 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 destroyed me when you you so kindly. Anytime we've asked you, you you were at our first award show. You sang a lot of stuff for us. You did. Uh, Scotty Moore wanted you to induct him. Out of everybody. Who do you want us to call? I'd like Vince Gill. Ah, uh, that's and, sweet. Um, that's sweet. I'll call him and see. You know, And you did, and then, and um, we had the Wrecking Crew that year. In you got up and sang with Larry Nketiah, and you did bridge over Trouble Water.
1: thrills of my life. One and, of them. And that was that was the original.
0: That was the guy that played on it. You know. Yeah. Crazy fun. And you nailed it. And I mean, it it, it was great. I kept. I was like, he's got the release. This is a single. You know. Uh, and so, and some people, we didn't do it because we didn't have the rights to it, you know. Yeah. Um, we did a five-camera shoot on it, but, but we never have released any of it because we can't afford the, sure. you know. Yeah. All the publishing rights and all, the, and all that sure. stuff. But somebody put it on YouTube, and every time I say it, I'm like, man, that's just.
1: Yeah, That that was a, that, that's a, that's a highlight. You know, there are times that you just kind of go, that was a. That was a great moment in time right there, getting to do that, you know, and anytime you you know anytime you're around the the great heroes of this music, you know, and that's that's how I am. I feel like a musician, I don't feel like a star, I never felt like a star I felt like I wanted to be thought of as a fellow musician, and so to get to do some of those things with the people that created them uh once in a
0: while was. Pretty awesome. You, you did it again for us this past in 19. You came out and sang with the with the Nashville, I call the new A team. I know some people don't oh, like, yeah. like that term, but the players. Yeah. Uh, they played on some of your records and everybody else's too. And that was great. Yeah,
1: I mean, so many of those guys go so far back with me. You know, I mean, I met Hobbs when I moved when I was 19 in California. Right. Playing my first sessions w- with John. Yeah. And and uh, and then Michael was in uh, Rodney's band, early '80s. Had the band called the Nerve and Eddie Eddie Bear. You know, all of them were.
0: He's out with Bottom Austin. Yeah. Uh, I tell you what, man. When you when you did the um, one of my favorite things you ever did, other like when you caught my name, stuff like that. Was I went to, I went to see you and Paul Franklin at the Ramen, and y'all y'all you did the, um, the stuff. stuff. I mean, when you were doing Together Again, I about flipped. It was just like, I was like, why can't we have music like that again?
1: Uh, we've still got it. No, radio. Yeah, I know. Well, it's, it's getting
0: played every now
1: and then somewhere. That was, that was tremendous. That was fun for me. You know, I was, for a long time I was, it's interesting how I've been, you mentioned Scotty Moore, and I was just as drawn to Scotty Moore and his playing as I was Elvis. And I was just as drawn to Don Rich when I watched Buck Owens, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it, it's on down the line, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind
0: of how I've always been wired. Well, you're saying the same thing that Keith Richards did. Yeah. He said, everybody wanted to be Elvis, I wanted to be Scotty. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back.
2: The Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum has been celebrating the men and women who make the music of our lives since 2006. The Musicians' Hall of Fame is the one and only museum in the world that honors the musicians that played on the greatest recordings of all time.
3: It's a music city, huh? It's uh, I mean, where else are you gonna get the cats, all the cats that are in this
2: room? From Hank to Hendrix, from L.A. to Nashville, the Musicians' Hall of Fame will take you on a musical journey highlighting the talented musicians that created the soundtrack of our lives. Come see what you've heard. And while visiting, check out the interactive Grammy Museum Gallery at the Musicians Hall of Fame. Located in the heart of downtown Nashville in the first floor of the historic Nashville Municipal Auditorium. See you soon at the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum.
0: Welcome back to Musicians Hall of Fame with Vince Gill. So, um, how'd you get How'd you get involved with the uh, Crossroads concerts?
1: Oh man, that was uh, that was a call that I just I couldn't believe I was getting. You know, truthfully, it was at a period. This is like I think around 2003, and I'd had this run of of pretty great success with hits and and uh, being you know fairly well received at radio, and it was I just started to see it kind of going the other way. You know. That's what I tell all these young kids. I go, "Hey, don't let this go to your head." They quit playing Elvis, so they're going to quit playing you. So be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I was kind of, I was in that transition, you know, and I was kind of going, "Okay, what's next? Where's, where's my next? Where's my next place? You know, where I'm going to find to land." And and I'm home one day, and the phone rings, and I answer it. And uh, the voice says, hello, Vince, it's Eric Clapton. I just wanted to call and I see what you're up to, you know. And I said, yeah, right, sure it is. You know, who's yanking my chain? I thought it was I'd been a prankster forever. Ever we was trying to prank each other, so I thought it was somebody with a fake English accent trying to yank my-
0: That was a pretty good one.
1: And he starts laughing. he goes, no, Vince, it really is. It's Eric. I said, well, whatever you want. The answer is yes. <laughs> no kidding. And he said... He said something real simple to me. He just said, "I'm," he said, "I've decided to have this guitar festival um, in Dallas in, in next summer, and, and I'm only inviting guitar players I like." And he said that to me, and I said, "Well, I'm in," you know. And it, what it did, you know, he he didn't know that I've gotten to tell him that, but it reaffirmed what I'd always hoped people saw me as yeah. was a musician, yeah, you know, and. and to be seen by him, as that meant everything to me. Yeah. So I just said, "Yeah, it, I, job well done." It, it, you know, that's that's how I hoped I'd be seen. And and a lot of times I don't know that, in the height of all that, you know, country music success and and having a bunch of, you know, I think people see the singer and the song and and that's about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But you know, I'm one of the minority people that I like the. I like all the frenzy stuff and all the how it gets all put together and and whatnot. So, getting to go do that festival and meeting all those great guitar heroes that I got to meet and be thought of as one of them was you know the best part about that story was Amy went with me, and uh, so I think I was sandwiched in between Joe Walsh and James Taylor. I was there. So I'm like, I'm going, oh God, I couldn't be in a worse place. You know, Joe Walsh is the most loved person by a crowd I've ever seen in my whole life to this day still and so I think I was after Joe and before James or something like that And so I'm going oh boy here comes the country guy you know the token country guy and Amy said to me before I went out there she goes I'm going to go out there in the crowd I want to experience this out in the middle of it and I said okay she said she came back after it was all done and I started with Oklahoma Borderline a real ripper you know that, that would really hopefully get me Get me off on a good foot with that crowd. Probably not a lot of them were that keen on who I was and knew much about me. So I knew that going in. But she said it was so funny. She says you went out, they introduced you, and you started playing. And she said the people just started filing out in mass. You know, to go get a beer, go get a hot dog, whatever. She said, and they're all in the process of filing out. I said, you started playing that solo in Oklahoma Borderline. She says they all stopped and they all turned around and they all came back and they all came back into their seats you know she said it was really cool from from my perspective to see to see that yeah you know and and so yeah it's a little bit different you know like like i said i was kind of the token country guy at those crossroads festival shows and and they let they knew i'd had a great band and they knew we could back up and we were always kind of a house band of sorts for half a dozen folks that would come and play in our band and who did you take
0: with you for that?
1: Oh, gosh, who was it? Willie Weeks, Billy Thomas, Tom Britt, Pete, John Hobbs, Don Sears, Jeff White. And uh, I think that was who was at that first one. And I don't remember. I can't with a straight face say who all we backed up. Yeah. Um, it was really
0: beautiful. Speaking of John, John Huey.
1: John would have been there, yeah.
0: Um, would you mind telling... I was at his uh, memorial when you spoke. That's one thing too. I don't know how you, how you do it, because I, 'cause I'm I'm crippled when it comes to talking about people I care about, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I can't say because I fall apart. Yeah. I do too. I'm I'm.
1: There's always an over and under when I'm going to cry at some some event like that, and it was John's memorial, and I think you're probably referring to when I called him up to see if he would be interested in going to work with me yeah you know and i was a huge fan of his you know he played some of my favorite steel guitar i've ever heard in my whole life and and from my love for conway and in the early days of conway's career john played on everything and then the years that i sang for conway i was conway's harmony singer in the 80s sang on the majority of his records but john wasn't a part of him because that was an era where conway didn't want steel on his records he was trying to be modern and keep up with, you know, what was going on in country music, whatever. But um, So anyway, When I Call Your Name has become a hit, and I've told you earlier how much I like Scotty Moore playing with Elvis and I like Don Rich. And I, there was always that, that guy, you know, that was kind of help defining who the artist was, and I wanted somebody like that. I finally had a big hit, and I go, man, if Mr. Huey, I don't know what he's up to, but if he'd come play with me... I'd have that, that really familiar, great, you know, kind of sidekick, you know. And so I called him up, and I'd never met him. And, and he answered, well, hello. And I said, is this John Huey? And he goes, yes, sir. And I said, uh, hey, I was just, uh, my name is Vince Gill. I'm a young artist and just had my first hit record, and 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 I've just been a, a lifelong fan of yours. And and I just wondered what you were up to. And he said, well, uh I was just sitting down to my last bowl of ice cream. I said, "Well, I meant professionally." He laughed, and I said, "But what I really like about you is there's more than one in a night." He goes, "Hell yeah!" So I said, "I've got the right man." I said, "You know, would you consider?" You know, well, I'm working with Loretta a little bit, and I said, "Well, you know, we'd do this, do this, and be be great." To, and he said, "Well, give it, give it a whirl," and he did. He came on board with a, young, a bunch of young pups, and and we all idolized him. You know, he got treated like a king in our band, and and we had so much fun. You know, and I remember he called me for the f- first gig, and he said, now, what do I wear? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, do you have a uniform? And I go, no, <laughs> we don't have uniforms. He goes, I can wear whatever I want? I said, yeah. I said, man, this isn't like probably anything you've ever done. Not the Twenty Birds. said okay great you know so he loved it he really enjoyed it because it was you know a lot of freedom And those when he first went with us what I remember most was all of our gigs were with Conway we were opening for Conway and George I was playing with George Jones and Conway Twitty in between because George demanded to go first and Conway demanded to close so I was one idiot with one hit song in between these two legends but had Mr. Huey there and he loved it because he he was Getting to be treated like, like royalty, right, and all the other twitty birds were kind of, I know, a little bit, you know, envious of 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 John, and so that that was that uh, was a beautiful 13 or 14 years of my life, and he played on all my records. Um, you know, Paul played on When I Call Your Name, Paul Franklin. A lot of people yeah. don't remember that, but Paul was so much in demand at the time, playing with Mark Knopfler and all that, that that was not a a feasible uh, move for him. And so then, many years later, I got I've gotten to play with the
0: best steel players that ever lived. But the other story I was referring to. I wasn't even right, was I? That was a great one, I love that one too. But it was about the, I gotta do my thing.
1: Oh, I can't tell that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you that one in private. (laughs) What was that? Well, he had a he had a ritual that was beautiful. I won't go into the details of the ritual because it's a little a little rough. But you know, he had false teeth, and and, and so he'd have to do his teeth, and then he, you know, and I roomed with him because I couldn't afford single rooms for all the guys in the early days, and and so we were roommates, and and he, you know, you got, you got to leave me enough time to do my thing. I said okay, so I'd get all my stuff done by noon and give him a couple. It took. It took a good two hours to watch him do this, and it was the greatest thing I ever saw, you know, in the in the preparation of looking sharp, you know. You'd have that hair dryer, and it'd come on for a while. He'd work on his hair, and, he'd, and it'd stop, and you'd hear pss, yeah, pss, you know, over his hair. And always, it was, you know, steel players never had a hair out of place. Yeah.
0: That's the one I was talking about.
1: <laughs> There's more. I'll tell you yeah. later.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, you, you told it at the church, so I figured you could... You know, well, yeah, yeah
1: well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'll keep it there. I, I, I've got an interview with him, too. I, I'll give it to you if you'd like to have it. What was it like playing with Vince on the road?
3: To me, it was the greatest job I ever had. I mean, even though I grew up with Conway and we were friends and all that, something about Vince, I mean, Vince is... What you see is what you get. I mean, he's just... He's got a heart big as this building. And everything was first class with him, everything we did. We'd go on the bus and he'd have food, like all in all the cabinets and stuff would be loaded down with food and if it started getting low, he'd make the driver pull over and say, hey, we need to stock up, you know. (laughs) But he was just the greatest guy in the world to work with and and still is. I called called him the other day and he said he was writing a song. He said, I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm back here writing one of them songs. And he said, where you can get up real high on it. <laughs> so um, I I'm, I'm assume, kind of assumed that maybe I get to play on his next album. He's writing, getting ready to cut, cut again. So I hope he gets to play on it. But but he was just, uh, he's another guy that would kind of like to tell you, I like think I mentioned before, that how he wanted to sound. Or, you know, he'd let you play it and he'd give you his idea. Let's try this. And it made you... Uh, really work to please him, like playing live on the road. Uh, one time, he never got on to me but one time and he didn't get on to me then. We were right in the middle of a song and, and the song had a three minor in it and I played like a, a five against the three minor, which works, but he wanted a, f- a real three minor. But I had slid up and did it and, 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 and somebody was doing a solo a turnaround and, and Vince was walking on. He just kind of casually walked over in front of me and grinned, you know, and he said, don't play that again. No, Don't play that anymore, please. <laughs> he Just kept smiling and turning. I said, "Okay." He walked around, knew what he was talking about. But he walked back over, and just like nothing ever happened, and I never played it again. <coughs> but and that's all he had to say. Because you know what I played fit, but it wasn't what he wanted to hear. Uh-huh. He wanted to hear a true three minor. And uh, but that was the only thing he ever told me, "Don't play," or, or you know, in all the twelve years. But uh, he just it, and it, that made it makes you want to make sure that you're satisfying him, you know, try to play every lick you play to please him.
0: Well, uh, not a slouch player himself.
3: Oh, yeah. I, I knew he was a good player, but I've heard him on the stage, like, not on the show but through, through doing sound check, we'd get off on some tune, and I mean, he would, it might be a blues tune, I, whatever the tune called for, he could play to fit that tune, I mean, he could get as blues as you wanted to get. And we'd get him on some jazzy tune and he would start to change his tone and his total technique and everything changed. He went to playing like jazz, you know. Just, and he, I was just amazed. I just sat there just looking at him like, I can't believe I'm hearing this, you know. He's just, he's just a great player and, and great talent.
0: Probably the, one of the only people that could have done justice, in my opinion, to what I think is the greatest Eagles song, record anyway was I Can't Tell You Why.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was a great song. Yeah,
0: and and he did. He did. He really, you know, if you're going to go after one, you really need to hook it. And he, I That's think
3: he I, really did a great I job. I think he on done a great job on that.
0: Well, he's like a dad, you know. Yeah. And I
1: think he loved me like I was his kid. I think so too. Yeah. yeah. It was really a special, special relationship. He's got a wonderful wife too. Oh, Miss Jean. Yeah. It's awesome. For all the years I was in the Time Jumpers, she would, she would work
0: the door. Yeah. You
1: know, after John passed, they. Kept her coming and made her a part of it all.
0: So, um, Eagles. <laughs> I mean, Pretty
1: good exit. <laughs> Pretty good last gig. <laughs> what in the heck? I mean, Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's not something you can dream up. You know, <laughs> it's not something you can dream up and think about and aim for any of that kind of stuff.
0: You know, and Did you just get a call? Uh
1: uh-huh. Pretty much. You know, the, Irving talked to Larry and, and through Don and and uh, I think you know. Don told me in, in confidence. He said, "You're the only guy I wanted, you know, that I would have done this with," which meant the world to me. Yeah. You know, I mean, we were, we've become friends um, through working on his Cass County record. I went and sang and played on a bunch of that and right. and uh, and I knew Glenn. Very well in the eighties we shared the same manager when the Eagles were broken up. Larry Fitzgerald managed Glenn's solo career and mine at the same time, so I was around Glenn a lot. And Joe and I met at the crossroads shows and we wanted to do a band like the Traveling Wilburys together, where we might get Michael McDonald, Sheryl Crow and Nora, Nora Jones or something and had this really cool little
0: That's a great idea. Fun
1: jam band, you know, and, 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 and had some fun and but then this this uh, tragedy happened with the passing of Glenn, and and most people, I think them included, thought that they wouldn't do it again. You know, and uh, and so they said, "Would you, would you consider it?" And I said, "When do we leave?" You know, it's always been my favorite band,
2: best songs. The songs, I mean, yeah, it's
1: it's it's mind blowing. Every night I'm sitting up there playing these songs, going, "Oh, there's New Kid in Town. Oh, there's Lion Eyes. Oh, there's." Can't tell you why. You know, it's just like, you know. I asked Don early on when we first started doing this, and I said, "What's the first song you and Glenn ever wrote?" And he smiled and he said, "Desperado." And I said, "I don't believe it." Yeah. I said, "You didn't write a half a dozen lame songs." He goes, "No, that's the first song we ever wrote together.
0: It's meant to be." Yeah. And Lion Eyes—that's still got to be one of the greatest of all time. But, but you're right. I don't even know how you pick a, a, a. and Eagle's greatest song. I mean, every one of them. And you were talking earlier about playing halfway, you know. But the, the, the lead break on, I can't tell you why, It's tremendous. But most anybody could play it, almost, you know. Yeah, I think that's a, 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 a great mystery that everybody
1: thinks some of this stuff is so hard. But you look back at some of the greatest records ever made, and the reason they're they're great is a lot of people could play them yeah it wasn't hard for you to play some of the credence licks that that john played or or some of the stones licks you know and you could find your way through so many of these songs and and i think that's there's a great there's a great truth in that of of you know it doesn't have to be complicated to be great yeah it doesn't have to be hard to be great it just has to
0: be great yeah yeah well the garage that whole garage band era the band's could come close to sounding well I mean you could play wild thing and and all this stuff and and wipe out yeah getting back to the Eagles to me it's like you got you got Lennon and McCartney and and Tom Petty and Mike Campbell I think are got to be at, there at the very yeah. top and and then Glenn and, and Don and no question and, and he's I love his his lyrics, yep. and uh, um, one of my all-time favorite songs was "Boys of Summer." I'm like, oh, this is great, and then I find out, oh, it's Mike Campbell and Don Henley. How can you go wrong, you know? So, are you are you writing with him any?
1: No, I don't. I don't foresee any of that happening. I think they they probably you not take something in and say, hey, what do you think? I might at some point with Don say, hey. I got this idea. I didn't. Interesting. Well, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm certainly not going to go. I have I've been wise and yeah, knowing when and when not to speak.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we well, all great when I saw you here.
1: It works. You know, it's it's different and it's not as good as the original. You know, I don't sing like Glenn and don't pretend to and and you know, and that's the thing, you know, I, I try to I see a lot of people making negative comments about me being in that band so it's not it's not going to be the eagles without glenn like i get it you know it's my favorite band too i don't want to i don't want to hear me sing new kid in town but the the other option is not possible right right so i'm just trying to you know do my part to to keep some great songs afloat you know keep them going let me
0: tell you i learned something just my little self here you don't listen to what people say on the internet, or whatever, nah. because they're out there, you know? I know. Yes. so uh, It's good
1: and bad, you know? That's the, that's the key to life is never believe the good stuff they say about you or the bad stuff.
0: <laughs> well, you can believe the good stuff. I'm telling <laughs> you. And I appreciate your helping us. Sure. You know, we did the very, when we did our grand opening, we were there, a matter of fact. And you said then, New Young said the same thing. I'm happiest, not being a rock star, but being in the pocket with Duck, and the guys in the back, and, uh, and you said pretty much the same thing. I appreciate you coming and giving up your time today and everything. And everything else you've done, uh, you're a good guy. Well, right back
1: at you. You've been a good friend to all the, all the musicians that don't get the, the
0: love and credit they deserve. Appreciate it. Thank you all for watching. and Catch us next time on Musicians Hall of Fame. Backstage.